Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard L. Etchberger was among 12 U.S. airmen killed March 11, 1968, when a North Vietnamese Army Special Forces team scaled a 3,000-foot cliff and attacked their secret radar camp. Etchberger helped rescue three of his comrades, two of whom were severely wounded, and made it safely aboard an evacuation helicopter himself before being shot through the floor as it lifted off from the mountain, where he helped lead a team that aided the U.S. bombing campaign of North Vietnam. This past Saturday, in conjunction with the Bringing War Home Roadshow at the USU Moab campus, we talked with Rich Etchberger, USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses and USU Vice Provost, who joined us to discuss his father's legacy and the experience of receiving the Medal of Honor on his behalf. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, broadcasting today from the USU Moab uh, campus, a beautiful new campus, and have with me uh, Rich Etchberger, Interim Vice President uh, for uh, Statewide Campuses, I believe is your your title at this point. Yep, that's correct, Tom. I'm also still continuing on my vice provost position, so I'm wearing many hats here at Statewide. Okay, wonderful. Well, well thank you so much for, for coming in. And uh, this broadcast is a part of the Bringing War Home project. UPR is partnering with Bringing War Home uh, with USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, the USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology. The project funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program and broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by uh, Utah Humanities. Um, so, uh, Rich Etchberger, we're, uh, we're going to have you tell the story today of your father, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard L. Etchberger, a recipient of the Medal of Honor, which is, which is incredible. Um, but I want to, and later on, uh, you, you just showed me the Medal of Honor, which is yeah. pretty cool. I've never seen one. Yeah. We'll talk about that as, as sure. well. And then as a part of this project, you'll have that documented by Bring War Home folks. But uh, I want to, to start with, with you growing up as a, I guess I was going to say Army brat, but I guess it's Air Force brat in this case. Yeah. That, yeah. We, uh, I was actually, I was born in Salt Lake City. Uh, and uh, two weeks later, uh, my family, my dad was in the Air Force. My mom was from Salt Lake. Uh, we packed up and we moved to North Africa. We lived in Morocco for a couple of years there. My dad uh, uh, worked on radars and those kinds of things, electronics. Uh, from there, uh, you know, every two years we were packing up and moving someplace. Uh, the next place that we moved to, uh, North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, at that time, the Air Force was working on a radar system that could be mounted uh, mobily, and they were doing that, uh, mounting them on trains and moving them around uh, the United States uh, to work on this this mobile radar idea. Um, from there, uh, in uh, 1965, we moved to the Philippines to Clark Air Force Base, uh, where uh, my brothers and I and my mom lived as my dad kind of rotated uh, in and out of Southeast Asia on uh, different assignments that he had there. He'd be home for um, a month or two, and then he'd be gone for six months or eight months uh, doing things. And of course, you know, when you're uh, in, a, in a military family, what you find out is uh, when, when folks leave, when your mom or your dad leaves to, to go on a mission, it's just a natural part of, of what goes on there. Um, uh, 1967, uh, we left the Philippines and we moved to uh, Illinois uh, to Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois. 
And my dad at that time uh, took an administrative job. And uh, it's about the only time in my life that I saw my dad where he wasn't happy all the time. He was, he was kind of a, a go out there and do things action sort of person. And we, we lasted there for about a year. And it, it's interesting, we have some uh, letters that he wrote at that time to some of his friends. And uh, it, in his letters, it was reflected that he just was not a desk jockey. And he, he, was, he was wanting to get back out in the field again. And shortly after that, in uh, late 1967, uh, we, he moved the family to his hometown of Hamburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, which was really unusual. It was, it was, we were living off of an Air Force base for the first time in my life. I was 11 years old at that time. Uh, first time I ever uh, attended public school. Uh, it was a, a really unique situation for us, but it was really cool because our, uh, his dad, my grandfather, owned a uh, five and dime store there, and it had a, a really cool little toy department downstairs, and so uh, we were terribly spoiled by my grandparents when we moved there. Uh, unbeknownst, to, I mean, at that time, my brother and I didn't had no clue why we did that. You know, you're not going to explain what's really going on to your your 10 and 11 year old kids, but yeah. that's kind of where we that's where we landed. Yeah. Um, so, there, and there's a book yeah. about your father, right? In the introduction to that, uh, it's called At All Costs. Yes. Right? Uh, in the introduction to that book, you say that, uh, you know, that your army life and your, your, your family life is bookended by two calls. Yeah. It's your father's story. Uh, we'll, we'll save the second call for, for later. But, uh, so, but before I get to that, um, you talked about the kinds of things your dad would bring home, especially when you're living in the Philippines, what kind of things would he bring home? Yeah, he would, uh, you know, being, being Air Force kids and being uh, kind of exposed to all these kind of this cool technology, uh, we would, he would take us out to the flight line and we would get to see the cool airplanes, all that kind of stuff. But he was always bringing home uh, neat things, whether it was like a, an inflatable mattress or uh, uh, like a, uh, a, a cool hat, like a, a, a fatigue hat, or uh, in the Philippines, a lot of times, because there was fighting there, you could go out in the field and you could find things out there uh, that were left over, a canteen maybe, or something like that. So we always had uh, cool young kids stuff that, that he would bring along uh, from other places. The, the other thing that things that he would bring along home is when he would visit... Uh, Thailand. A lot of the time he would base out of Thailand, even though we were in the Philippines. He would bring home uh, different kind of artifacts, uh, art. He would bring a lot of art home. Uh, he would bring home jewelry for my, for my mother. Uh, just just anything like that that was really, and, and he had done this before in Africa, and, and they had done a lot of collecting from these various cultures that we had been in. So there was kind of this mix of cultural type stuff that we, we still have a lot of it around our house. And then there's the military stuff that I don't have a lot of that left over, of course, because some of that was kid stuff. But he, he was still collecting those kind of things. Uh, tell me a bit about your mother. She was, I guess, a supportive Air Force wife. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she, uh, they actually, they met at a restaurant in uh, Salt Lake City called High Jinx, uh, where dad would stop for a donut every morning on his way uh, over to the airport. He worked at the airport in Salt Lake. And uh, they ended up having a relationship and ended up getting married and, uh, you know, vacation at the Grand Canyon, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I think from the beginning, they were really a great team. My mom had a, a young son, my, my brother Steve, at that time. He was 10 years old. 
And, uh, you know, my dad just adopted him and we, be, you know, we became a family. And whenever we would travel, because dad was out of the, uh, out of the country very often, a lot of times mom was running the show at home. And uh, the kind of military family I grew up in was the kind where you said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And that was rather dad was around or rather mom was around. And, uh, you know, as I found out later on in my life that uh, she took being an Air Force wife extremely seriously and all the the great things that go along with that and all of the challenges that go along with that. Yeah. So tell me about that uh, call, 1968, right? Yep. It was you that picked up? Did, I did. Yeah. yeah. March 1968, we were living in a duplex uh, house in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and uh, we were having dinner. And uh, it's amazing. Uh, the thing that I really remember about this is that we had just started having dessert, and it was strawberry shortcake. And uh, we were the three of us were sitting there, and it, this was back in the time of rotary phones. Uh, and I picked up the phone, and I, I answered the phone, Etchberger Residence, can I help you? You know, that's how my, my parents had taught me to answer the phone. And the gentleman said, could I please speak to Mrs. Etchberger? And so I handed to my mom across the table, and she talked for, a, I'm going to guess, less than a minute. And she dropped the phone and fell on the floor crying. And my brother and I were just freaked out. You know, it was, she didn't say anything at all. She just, and we were, I took off running because it was a duplex that was connected through the basement. I ran down the basement steps, up the other side, banged on the door for the neighbors and brought them back. And, and uh, when they came back, then my mom was sobbing and said that dad had been killed. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, you know, incredible change, right, for the, for the family. Tragic. You, you reflect in the introduction to the book that I mentioned, you say, you, you wonder how your life would have been different if not for that call. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, uh, uh, I at that time was thinking, you know, I was growing up in a military family and I really admired what was going on. I, I loved the whole aspect of my dad serving in the military. I, I saw myself potentially someday going to the Air Force Academy, something like that. And uh, I don't want to say it happened in a snap of the fingers, but that all changed very quickly uh, at that time. Uh, it just was, it, it was not attractive. That was not something that was attractive anymore. Certainly living through that time, uh, you know, as, as folks who lived through that time, uh, we, we had n nowhere near the respect that we have now for our soldiers uh, at that time. It was a very difficult situation to grow up in. And, uh, you know, certainly from my dad's side, but also seeing what was going on in America was very difficult. Mm -hmm. Did your dad experience any of that? Uh, that's, you know, because, yeah, we have a, a dark history there of yeah. not welcoming home the veterans. Yeah, and I and I have to say no, you know, and mm -hmm. at the same time, it was because I think we lived so much on Air Force bases. You know, we were always on bases. Uh, I I do I do recall coming home uh, that first uh, being in public school. It wasn't so much about the military at that time. It was more about uh, w when we lived on Air Force bases. It was. Uh, diversity of of people, of races, of religions. It, it was just a natural thing on a military base. And when I came home uh, to that first time uh, living off base and going to school off base, uh, that was the first time I got a bloody nose because I was hanging out with the wrong people. And uh, certain 
groups in fifth grade of all things didn't think that was a good idea. So <laughs> it, it was a that was a real eye opener for me to see what what America was like as opposed to an American Air Force base. Mm-hmm. So uh, what did your father do ordinarily in the in the Air Force? What was his job? Yeah, he would he was in charge of uh, he was a chief master sergeant. So he was kind of the uh, the interface between the commander for his group, the captain for his group, and the men who were doing the work. So they would set up these radar bases, these mobile radar bases. Uh, they would fly all the equipment to some site, set up all the equipment, and then they would start. Uh, their their role was to guide aircraft into drop bombs. And so they practiced that around the United States. As I mentioned earlier, On the, uh, they put them on these railroad cars, but they could just as easily fly them in with helicopters, all of this equipment. And uh, so they would get these set up. He would, he would be uh, working with the folks that set it up, but then he would be in charge of running these missions uh, to guide these airplanes into uh, to where they were going to drop their bombs. Mm. So uh, you get this, this phone call that your life changes, uh, informing you know, your mother and your and your and you, but your father's been killed. At that point, what did, what did you know? What, what did you understand? Yeah. Well, and I think to, to just explore that call a little bit more, my mom said, uh, she kept saying over and over again after she said he, he'd been killed, she said, they told me they would never call on the phone if something happened, that someone would come to the house. And in fact, the next day, someone did come to the house. Uh, 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 an Air Force major and a chaplain came to the house the next day. And of course, at that time, my, my, uh, my dad's parents were also involved in the situation at that time. Um, but I, I think with the, the, the next things that happened there, that, that I can remember between the time that his body made it back from Southeast Asia, Asia to, to Hamburg, Pennsylvania, uh, the newspaper ran a story, uh, the local newspaper, that said that he had been killed in a helicopter crash. And we still have a copy of that newspaper article, and that's what my mother told us then. Uh, she said that, that they had been somewhere and there was a helicopter crash. And so at that point, I was you know, of course, still traumatized, but to me, a helicopter crash is kind of similar to a car crash. You know, it's, it happens kind of thing. And I was sad that, that my dad was gone, but it, I wasn't, I, that, as an 11, 11 year old kid, you know, mostly what I was thinking there was that I was going to miss growing up with my dad. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, you think about what you, what you lost there. Um, so a lot more happened out there than than you knew at the time, right? Yeah. How, how did uh, how did that information begin to trickle out? Okay, so the next thing that that happened that was interesting, but uh, a, a lot of folks ask us, did, what, what did you think of that? The situation happened where we went to the Pentagon. When I say we, it was my mom and my two brothers. And uh, at that time, my older brother, Steve, was uh, an airman. He had joined the Air Force. And he was serving in California, and my grandparents, my my dad's parents. We went to the Pentagon, uh, and we went into a, a room, and we met with the chief of staff for the Air Force, who's the top Air Force commander. And he presented my mom at that time uh, with an Air Force cross, which is the highest uh, uh, medal that you can earn in the in the Air Force, and only the Medal of Honor is above that. 
And it was a really short ceremony. It was, I'm remembering it was maybe about 10 minutes long. Uh, We have some photographs for that. And then we went home and my mom took the medal and the Air Force Cross and she wrapped it up in a blanket and she put it in the back of her closet. And she never told anybody. She never, from that point on, never talked about that again in my life till she died uh, in uh, many, many years later. Mm. She never mentioned that. Now, we'll, we'll learn about circumstances and maybe why she did that, right, yeah. as we go along here. Yeah. Uh, I, I should point out here, you know, we tend to think of veterans as a little bit older, especially Vietnam War veterans. That's the picture we have in our minds right yeah. now. Your dad was in his 30s, I think, yeah. when he got killed. Yeah, he was 35 years old. He was uh, even because he, he joined the Air Force right out of high school. And uh, he was within two years of retirement. So he had, he had already, we had, because we can now look at the letters that he had sent to other people, he was planning to, when he was done with this mission, he was planning to uh, try to get to Europe for two years and then retire after that and, and head back home again, back to Hamburg. Yeah. Now, uh, what, uh, I guess what we did learn, we have, what we know now is yeah. um, he was officially, quote-unquote, in the uh, civilian, right? Yep. At, at that point, because, because they were in Laos, right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. And, and, you, and officially, that, you know, can't be fighting in Laos, right? International agreements. That's correct. And so they, so they had to be clandestine. Yep. Yeah, they, uh, what happened there is the, the, the Air Force, the military action that was going on in Southeast Asia, they were not capable of doing any kind of uh, pinpoint bombing uh, of Hanoi. Uh, the president at that time, President Johnson, had made the decision not to use B-52s uh, because of the connection to nuclear weapons and those kinds of things. So the smaller planes that they could use for bombing didn't have the accuracy to be able to bomb without having this radar to guide them in. Well, they found a place in Hanoi, uh, Fu Ti is the name of the place, Lima Site 85, that was uh, about 125 airline miles from this mountaintop to Hanoi, which was perfect for the, the kind of radar work that they wanted to do. However, it was in Hanoi, and according to the uh, Geneva Convention, that we could not have military uh, personnel in, in Laos. However, we could have civilian contractors at the invitation of the government of Laos in, uh, in Laos. And so they did the political stuff to do that. And then they put together a team of about 40 uh, Air Force personnel to, that, that was further broken up into two teams of about 20 each. And they had the wives and the men go to Washington. They resigned from the Air Force, and then they started working for Lockheed Aircraft Corporation as uh, contractors. Uh, all of the women were briefed on what the mission would be. Uh, they all signed non-disclosure agreements uh, that had some, later on came back with some real implications for my mother, that non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and then they, they went through their training. Uh, they basically carried out all that training they'd done to, for this mobile radars to locate a radar site there to that mountaintop, 5,000 foot mountaintop in uh, northeastern Laos. So your your mother knew more than she was yes saying yeah she knew she she honored that agreement I she guess. did yeah that's what, at probably emotional pain to her oh I can only imagine uh, knowing these things and then having it recognized with the Air Force Cross 
I mean, they don't just give those away for or for helicopter crashes. Uh, it's a pretty prestigious award. And uh, to actually wrap that thing up in a blanket and hide it in the closet and never, she, she never told any of her friends. I never even heard her speak to my grandparents about it after that. And she certainly never talked to the, you know, the, my brothers and I about it the rest of her life. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're speaking with Rich Etchberger, who is USU Vice Provost and USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses. We spoke on Saturday in conjunction with the Bringing War Home Roadshow at the USU Moab campus. We're talking about Rich Etchberger's father, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard L. Etchberger, who received the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. And following a break... We'll uh, ask Rich Etchberger what happened on that day, March 1968, on that mountaintop in Laos. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. This past Saturday, in conjunction with the Bringing War Home Roadshow at the USU Moab campus, uh, we talked with Rich Etchberger, USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses, USU Vice Provost. He joined us there at the Moab campus to discuss his father's legacy and receiving the Medal of Honor on behalf of his father. Utah Public Radio is partnering with uh, for the Bringing War Home project with the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, the USU History Department, and the USU Museum of Anthropology. This project is funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program, and broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by Utah Humanities. So tell us what happened on that. This is this is March 11, 1968, right? Yeah. You're on that mountaintop. The, the North Vietnamese, this was secret, but they they pinpointed yeah. that this is where the, the installation is. Um, and of course they're going to want to take it out. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, what we know, t- because we've also been able to, over the years, we've been able to see some of the, uh, declassified documents from the Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese army. We know what they were thinking. And when the bombing all of a sudden became more intense and it became more accurate and that coincides with this new radar installation on top of a mountain, they put two and two together pretty quick. And they massed uh, about 1,500 uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, uh, army folks at the bottom of the, the, these cliffs. And uh, the defense of the cliffs was going, or of the base was going to be no one can climb these cliffs to get up there. And uh, at that time, there was about 20 personnel operating the radar at any one time. And they would, they would rotate in a week on, a week off. The week you were off, you were in uh, at Udorn Air Force Base in Thailand, or you were up there on the mountain, 20 of you. Uh, there were 18 um, Air Force personnel and two CIA personnel there. Uh, the CIA personnel were in charge of the Hmong folks from, uh, from Laos who were providing some perimeter defense around there. But because they're working for Lockheed, they're up there with no weapons. And uh, that's until the point they go to, they, they rotate out and uh, they're able to work with, um, uh, this is interesting I, uh, kind of coincidence here, the person that they get the weapons from is actually General Secord, uh, you know, another person who was heavily involved in the, uh, the Vietnam conflict. Uh, they're able to buy weapons, M16 rifles for a dollar a piece, 
so they've got some kind of deniability there and they have no serial numbers on them and they give them a couple of cans of ammunition. And so they're up there with a couple of M16s and around three in the morning, they're running radar missions. The, the radar vans are, mu are a lot like a tractor trailer. They've got two doors at the end, but no other entrances or exits and they're, they're working in there. And the Vietnamese do make it up on top and about 900 Vietnamese make it over the top and they quickly open up those radar doors for the half of the group that's in there working and they kill everybody inside. So within 15 minutes, half the, the crew is dead. And the other half of the crew, of which my father was, was part of that group, here's the, the fighting up top and they leave their bunks and they run to the edge. There's a uh, sort of like a cave on the side. They climb down the cliff and they hide in this cave. And uh, at that point, there's about seven of them who are still alive, and none of them have been injured at that point. Uh, however, the Vietnamese find out where they're at, and they start throwing grenades into this cave. And they're picking them up and throwing the grenades back out over the edge of the cliff until they finally miss one. And one of them blows up, and, and it kills three of the people in there, three other people. So there's now... Uh, there's now four people alive, and everybody but my dad at that point had been wounded pretty pretty heavily. And uh, at that time, uh, that the, things, the, the attack started about three in the morning, and this goes on just about until daylight. And at daylight, uh, the Air Force is able to get in there with some, some bombers, and they start driving the enemy back at that point. They're dropping bombs, and, and they've got uh, helicopter gunships, and they're, they're basically chasing everybody away, trying to get set up to do a rescue attempt uh, at that time. And so CIA <laughs> comes flying in, Air America uh, comes in with a helicopter. And uh, because the Air Force helicopters uh, were, were fighting off the Vietnamese, the CIA came in and they had a hoist, you know, the kind of hoist you see with the wire going down. And they dropped that wire down and uh, my dad starts loading people on. And uh, we, the, he gets uh, two of them loaded up there, uh, gets the third one uh, loaded on there, and then he gets on at the very end. He starts going up, and unbeknownst to anybody, another Air Force guy had hidden in the bushes. And uh, he'd actually laid there and played dead, and he, he had been shot in the leg. And he jumps up and starts to try to run over. And so my dad goes back down again. He's almost in the helicopter, goes back down again, picks him up, and the two of them get on and go up. And uh, at that point, uh, the, the uh, Air America helicopter turns and starts to take off, and a, a Vietnamese soldier runs out and shoots up through the, the bottom of the helicopter and kills my dad. Yeah, this was you know, it's tragic. Um, your dad saved several people there right oh yeah but for your dad they they would be gone oh yeah it, it definitely uh and the 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 story the story is very compelling because uh one of the things that the true joy of this is to meet those those men and uh, to hear about that uh one of them i can't remember which one uh said uh you know they they would have got us Except Etchberger, he calls him. Etchberger was just uh, so fierce yeah. with his M16 fire. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, which is interesting because, uh, and that was John Daniel was the name of that gentleman. John is the only man still alive today. Uh, you know, most of these folks are in their late 80s, early 90s right now. 
But, uh, you know, John tells a story about they were all, they all trained together, went through training together, and they got one day on the firing range with a rifle. <laughs> and so when, and I've talked to John extensively about this over the years, you know, he, he says your dad was a wild man out there. He just, you know, he went out in front and, you know, basically got all those people that were close in between putting people on that sling and getting them up there. He was shooting at those people. And, uh, which is a, di a different version of my father than I would have, mm -hmm. have thought. You know, I'd, I'd never seen that. You know, he was a radar guy. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to ask you, obviously, it's a, it's a much different context. He's, he's, when he's home, he's dad. And, yeah. Um, and you don't know a whole lot about what he does. And, um, but somewhere in him, there's this fierceness, I guess, yeah. and, and courage. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of courage. Because he sent, he sent all those other men up on, in the sling before he... Yeah. He went up himself, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think, I think even though it's in a very different context, you know, he was always the leader. Like I said, he was the connection between the officers and the, the line folks. And when we lived in the Philippines, uh, people rotated in and out of the base all the time. But when he had new people coming for his crew, he made sure that the groceries were there for when they showed up. Uh, over there, we had to drink water that was in, you know, uh, uh, tank water. And so he, their water tank was filled. Uh, he made sure that the women were, you know, my mom would go and meet with the women and talk about, here's where you get groceries, here's where you do that stuff. He was always taking care of people. So I think this is an extension of, you know, and, and since, since things have happened over the years, I've met another, a, a lot of other Medal of Honor recipients, and these are, these are normal people put in unique situations and, and have reacted extraordinarily, you know? So that's, that's really what I see when I've met these other people, and, and I'm, it's, <laughs> it's amazing to think that's my dad doing that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that is a great legacy, is it, isn't it? Yeah. What, what's the legacy in your family, do you think? Um, well, I got, you know, it's really funny. I got asked, I was doing a, a workshop last week uh, for some folks here at USU, and they asked me, you know, where, where do you get your leadership skills? And I said, well, I got to tell you, uh, a large part of it is I've had great mentors. I've worked with other great administrators here at USU. I said, but I've got this, this really personal connection <laughs> to uh, a legacy from my father um, to see when I'm in a difficult situation, when, I've got, when I'm in a meeting and I gotta be on my game, that can be stressful. Uh, life things are stressful, but I kinda go, oh, I just have to think about my dad. <laughs> you know, talk about stress, you know, and, and how you react to that situation and, and make the decisions that you do. Um, I'm, I'm blessed to have that kind of legacy to, to reflect upon. Mm. Um, so, uh, reading a little bit from the book, uh, this, this all had to be clandestine, right? Because we weren't supposed to be in Laos, right? Yeah. Uh, international treaties and such. Um, in, in fact, the way your dad's body was brought home was, yeah, had to be pretty hush-hush, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think at this point, Tom, what I'd like to say is we were the, we were fortunate. We we're the only family to get a body, uh, of the, the men who were killed there, uh, at that time, none of the other bodies were recovered. Uh, since then, they've gone back and done a, some work over there to see what they can they can find. And a couple other uh, remains have been found and identified. But those are the families that uh, you know that I think about. And I, I the closure that they never got is is something that to me is is pretty pretty devastating. Yeah. So on 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 our side of things, what happened? Uh, his body came home. 
And uh, as, as all military bodies do, it went to Dover Air Force Base in Dover, Delaware. And then uh, it was escorted by one military person uh, to up to Hamburg, Pennsylvania, to the Berkey and Spack Funeral Home, uh, which, because my grandfather had that little five-and-dime store, we knew everybody in that little town of 4,000 people. And uh, at that time, I since have found out that when the, the undertaker, when the, the funeral home director took, took possession of my dad's body, he immediately knew he was not in a helicopter crash. Uh, you know, he had a gunshot wound, and uh, a helicopter crash, or probably, you know, oftentimes there wouldn't be remains left over. My, my dad, they had an open casket funeral for him, and he looked normal to me uh, at 11 years old. But people say, well, didn't you think about this? And I say, as an 11-year-old kid, I did not. <laughs> you know, I, uh, since then, uh, thinking, thinking back on these things, yeah, there, there, were, there were a lot of flags, I guess, there, a lot of signs that things were not as they seemed. Yeah. I keep going back to your mother, who, who knew more than, than she could ever say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, you're 11 years old, you go forward, the family goes forward the best they, the best they can, did receive this top Air Force medal, yeah. which your mother wrapped in a blanket and put in the back of the closet, right? Yeah. Um, what, uh, tell me a little bit about that journey to your father getting the Medal of Honor. Well, I think uh, the next, the next thing, you know, life goes on for me. I go to I go to college, I go to grad school, I get a job here at Utah State University as a professor up in the Uinta Basin. Uh, my wife and I, Leanna, are living up there in, in Vernal. Uh, and one day, uh, one night, the phone rings, and it's uh, this gentleman says, are you Richard Etchberger, the son of Richard L. Etchberger uh, from the Air Force? And I said, give me your phone number, I'll call you back. Mm. I was a little skeptical, and I called him back, and, and the person was Tim Castle. Uh, Tim uh, was a CIA officer, and he also uh, was at the University of Alabama. And through his CIA connections, he knew when this mission was declassified uh, by the Air Force and by the CIA, and he started to write a, a book about that. And uh, he wanted to, uh, at that time he said, uh, what do you know about your dad? I said, my dad died in a helicopter crash. And he said, do you want to know the real story? <laughs> And uh, uh, Leanna, uh, after I was talking to him for about an hour, brings me a box of tissues. And uh, I talked to Tim for about three hours that night, uh, hearing the whole story. And uh, he, after that, he FedExed me a copy of the manuscript. And uh, I, at that time, uh, you know, whatever age I was at that time, 38 years old, uh, having for almost 30 years believed uh, it was a helicopter crash, it was a very, um, I don't want to say challenging, but it was emotionally uh, challenging to, to have that, you know, to learn those kinds of things. Yeah, so then you, I guess you rethink everything, right? Yeah, you totally do because, and and at that time, this this is the this is one of the things the really sad coincidence. Um, my wife and I get married in in August of 1994, and my mom dies of a heart attack about six weeks later. Hmm. So about a year before Tim Castle kind of tells the family what happened, my mom passes away, hmm. and she passes away without ever 
ever talking to the boys, her three sons, about what really happened uh, over there. And I, you know, certainly we can't know exactly everything that she knew, but we're fairly confident that she knew and had talked to the men that were that had been saved. You know, because we now have talked to them. Yeah. And so, but but she carries that that mission of the Air Force wife to her grave. Yeah, it's an indication of how seriously she took that, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, what about the men that your dad uh, saved? I guess they, obviously they knew what happened, but they, they had to be careful about that as well. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because we've, uh, we've had the opportunity to talk to uh, not all of them. Some of them passed away before we were able to talk to them. But John Daniel has been a really close friend of the family, he remains a great friend of the family. Uh, to be able to talk to him, when they, when they had all recovered from their wounds, they were put right back on active duty. I mean, the, and John talks about, uh, you know, they weren't, they didn't go back to uh, Southeast Asia again, but they were put on other radar assignments here around the United States. And uh, he said, yeah, it's, he's had trouble thinking about those times over the rest of his life. But he said, you know what? It was just like I went back to doing my job again. And, uh, and then I retired from the Air Force and I went on and I had a career. I had kids, I had grandkids. Uh, when we talked to him about uh, about that night and about the mission, he's he's very emotional and uh, and uh, it as you might imagine, it's it's been difficult mm. uh, for those those times. Must be a sense of relief and release for him, right, and the others to be able to talk about it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I and we get to see him. There's occasionally ceremonies, or we'll go and talk at Air Force bases and things like that. And John will be part of those 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 events, and uh, and and I. You know, he said in the past, uh, you know, what do you what do you guys think of this? I mean, you know, your dad saved all of us, but then he died. And I said, you know, John, you've got a family, you've got grandkids. None of those, none of that would exist. You know, so I'm just happy that 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 there is again. That's that's part of the legacy of this this whole thing. Yeah, there's another uh, one of the men that your dad saved, Stanley Sliz. Stan Sliz was the captain. Yes, he says this is his quote. I think he, he was talking to I can't remember CNN or somebody. He says, "I live with it every day. I live with it every day. It haunts me." Yeah, yeah, Stan. Uh, Stan, the one of the things I think that's that's really important here is we lived and with all of our kids together. His Stan's son Matt was, uh, you know, I was in first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade with him. We socialized. We had picnics together. This whole group of of airmen traveled around together for years. This was this was our family. And uh, you know, I know Stan. Stan was wounded very seriously and uh, was unconscious during most of what what happened up there on the mountain. And then he basically woke up uh, in Thailand and you know knew nothing of, of what had gone on. You know, he was he was in and out of consciousness during this whole this whole event. And I can imagine it would be very very traumatic to to have to live through something like that. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're uh, presenting our conversation from Moab, which we recorded this past Saturday on the USU Moab campus with Rich Edgeberger, USU Vice Provost and USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses. We're talking about his father's legacy, his father's Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard L. Edgeberger, and uh, the senior Edgeberger received posthumously the Congressional Medal of Honor. Rich Edgeberger has talked about two calls that changed his life, and following a break, we'll talk about the second call, uh, informing the family 
that uh, their father would uh, be receiving the Medal of Honor. We'll have uh, more of a conversation following this break. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. This past Saturday, I was in Moab in conjunction with the Bringing War Home Roadshow. Um, and that, that took place at the USU Moab campus. And uh, while I was there, I talked with Rich Etchberger, USU Vice Provost and USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses. And he joined me to discuss his father's legacy and receiving the Medal of Honor on his uh, father's behalf. Utah Public Radio is partnering for the Bringing War Home Project with USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, the USU History Department, and USU Museum of Anthropology. This project is funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Dialogues on the Experience of War program, and broadcasts of Bringing War Home on Utah Public Radio are supported by Utah Humanities. So you mentioned uh, uh, two calls. Yeah. Your life. The second call, I think your brother took. Yep. Right, informing him. Then I imagine he informed you, Dad's going to get the Medal of Honor. Yeah. In uh, in July uh, of uh, uh, 2010, uh, Leanna and I, my wife Leanna and I, are on vacation over in Colorado, escaping from the internet and Wi-Fi and everything else. We'd been at, at the cabin for a week or so, and eventually we had to come back into town to get provisions. And uh, so we got to the point, and everybody's been there, where your cell phone gets service again, and mine just blows up with, with text messages. And it's my brother, Corey, and he's repeatedly saying, call me, call me, call me, call me. And so I call him. We pull over next to the road uh, up in the mountains of Colorado. I call him, and uh, he says, hey, the president called, <laughs> which was... I knew what that meant because uh, we, at that time, we'd been informed uh, by the Air Force that they were seeking to have the the Air Force Cross up, upgraded to the Medal of Honor, and uh, the president said, "Hey, we are planning uh, in late September to have the ceremony at the White House. Uh, could you please bring your family? Uh, we'd we'd love to have you there." And uh, you know that <laughs> that led to uh, more tissues. <laughs> as you might imagine next to the road <laughs> uh, you don't say no to that right no you, you, no 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 you're, no, you're no. gonna you're gonna show up yeah <laughs> tell me what that was like it, medal uh, of honor ceremony yeah it uh the 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 medal of honor ceremony is is was actually a week uh in the in the uh um in washington and it it, it started out with uh of course, there's there's a lot of briefings that go along with that, so you understand exactly what's going to happen and who's going to be where and who's going to do do what. Uh, but basically, it was it was three ceremonies. It was the um, the Medal of Honor ceremony at the White House was the first event. The second event was the Hall of Heroes induction at the Pentagon, where which is for the Air Force. And then the third ceremony we had uh, was at the uh, CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. So the first ceremony, the, the one at the White House, uh, was our close family. Uh, there was about a dozen of us, and about 100 of our friends we were allowed to, uh, to bring along. And uh, we got all dressed up. Uh, we had our, our little 10-year-old daughter, Molly, with us. And uh, we went to uh, the White House. We did a little tour first, looked at, at some different, different parts of the White House. But then when it came time, Mr. and Mrs. Obama, 
uh, President and Mrs. Obama uh, had us in the Oval Office, and it was kind of a, uh, I would say, low-key meet and greet. You know, we talked about different things. Uh, uh, Leanna, my wife, talked to Mrs. Obama about the White House garden. Uh, they talked about Bo, their dog at that time. And uh, at that time, they had some young daughters. So we, we kind of had a lot in common. And uh, at the end of the ceremony, which we were about ready to, to go down to the presentation, uh, everybody filed out. And uh, President Obama and myself were the last two to leave the room. And because uh, I was going to be the one actually receiving it, uh, he, he kind of stopped me at the, at, just before we left the room. And he said, are you okay with this? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm okay with this. And he, said, and he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and he said, let's just not try and drop this thing. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was the kind of thing. At that point, I was, I was afraid I was going to hyperventilate and fall off the stage or something. And uh, I kind of looked at him and he laughed and off we walked yeah. and into, into this room that was filled with hundreds of cameras and, and reporters and former uh, recipients of the Medal of Honor and enough generals that I'd, you know, I didn't know there were that many. Uh, and then, of course, on the other side of the room was all of our family was over there. And we walked up on the stage. Uh, the president walked up there, introduced us, and we walked up on the stage and he gave us each a big hug. And uh, then the ceremony started. Mm. Well, it's amazing. Uh, well, this project, Bring War Home, is centered around objects. Yeah. And uh, you, you have your dad's Medal of Honor. I wonder it, if you could, uh, could you get that and yeah. describe it for us? Yeah. Would you like me to get it right Yeah, yeah. Le yeah. Leanna, could you grab that out of the box there? Um, yeah, this, uh, the, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, the, the Medal of Honor is, uh, th there's been not quite 4,000 Medal of Honors uh, awarded uh, since the Civil War. For the Air Force, this is very interesting because there's only 19 that have been awarded. And prior to my father, there had only been 18 Medals of Honor uh, awarded for the Air Force. And so uh, this is, uh, as you might imagine, yeah, there we go. Th as you might imagine, this for the Air Force was a, a, an extreme honor to have one of their own uh, to, to be presented with this award. So I'll just describe it a little bit here. This it's it's in uh, a a beautiful uh, wooden uh, case with a, with a glass. Now you've opened it here, and so the the uh, I guess the neck part is in blue. Yep. Right. And, and that's known as Medal of Honor blue. Medal of Honor blue. Yeah. It has uh, several stars in the center where the medal hangs down from it. Right. Yep. In white. Um, then the medal itself. Uh, describe the medal itself for me. It the medals uh, the medals of honor are different for each of the services. Uh, the Air Force Medal of Honor is the largest of all the services. Uh, it's a gold star uh, that has Lady Liberty in the center of it, and and above that it's got the the eagle and the word Valor on it, and uh, it's it's a very very impressive award. Yeah. Um. So maybe you close here. What? What's the legacy now? I mean, you had everything changed, I think, with, with the information about how your dad died, his heroism, right? Now the, the Medal of Honor. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, there's a couple of questions that, that people often ask me. And, you know, 
do you feel like something was stolen from you for not knowing for, you know, almost 30 years? Do you feel like, like something was stolen from you? And, and my response to that is, look, I, I can't change what happened. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a forward looking person. Uh, I, I really, my brothers and I put our heads together and we came up with this idea that let's try and make something really positive out of this. And, and so, Tom, I think you might know that we, we formed a foundation, the Chief, Chief Etchberger Foundation. Uh, and, and our whole attempt to make something really positive out of Dad's legacy is to travel around to Air Force bases around the world, uh, to make presentations about what it was like to live in a supportive Air Force family, uh, to, to let these young folks that are serving our country understand that, that – uh, that there is support out there for them through through some of the most difficult jobs that we have have folks to do to protect our freedoms. Uh, that that the Air Force, even though they have secrecy, plays a part in many things in life. But that at the same time, that there are people out there who care about you, and that to share this story of, of Dad's bravery and his heroism, and also our mom's side of the story. To, to show that, that, you know, with a team like that, that, that things are possible, that you can do extraordinary things. Mm. So you got the foundation. Um, I know there, there's a Netflix series, right, on Medal of Honor recipients. Your dad has an episode now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, w- and that was very interesting. We got to, to work with the folks at Netflix uh, on his uh, – they, they came to us and they wanted to know what the story we would like to see told. And, of course, that included, you know, the, the part of the story about our mom and, and her, uh, her contribution to this whole thing. They were so interested in the deal or in the, uh, the details of, of my dad's life. They wanted to – my dad was left-handed. And so he wore his wrist ro- wristwatch on his right arm and he wore it with the face on the inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you, if you look at him in the Netflix episode, he is wearing his wristwatch with the face in on his right-hand mm-hmm. wrist. Uh, he shoots the gun left-handed. Uh, my mom was a redhead. And, you know, there's all those really cool details uh, that are part of that. Uh, I will have to tell you this, Tom. Uh, when that came out, I couldn't watch it. Mm. Just too, too close. Too, too close. And yeah. I think, you know, when, when you've got this whole long time period of helicopter crash, and then all of a sudden you hear, you know, your, what's in your mind is a little different than actually seeing what this might have been. Uh, the, the, the episode is very well done. It's very accurate to as to what happens uh, during, during the, the time up there. And it's, for, for myself, it was very emotional to, to try to watch that. Mm. Seems like there's a very important uh, element of this uh, epitomized in, a, I think there's an award, non-commissioned officers training school, Word. Yep. Yep. There's an award given annually in your father's name. Yep. Uh, they're, they're around uh, the Air Force bases. The, uh, the enlisted uh, leadership schools are named after. They're the Etchberger Leadership Schools. Mm. And uh, the, the team award that is given uh, at these uh, leadership trainings is the Etchberger Team Award. And it's, it's very different because it's the only team award that's given. There's a lot of individual awards given during these trainings, but the Etchberger Award is a team award. Mm-hmm. And uh, very much uh, recognizing that idea of that uh, certainly there's a leadership structure, but they're all out there together looking out for each other and uh, that – Again, when you have that kind of teamwork, that things are possible. Uh, 
So your dad wasn't an enlisted man, right? Yes, he was enlisted. Um, and, uh, you know, rose to be a leader, non-commissioned officer. Yep. I don't know if you ever, if you ever talked about that or what he felt about, about that. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think the thing that, the, uh, let me give you just an example there of uh, being a, he was a senior uh, a chief master sergeant, you know, which is the, the highest rank you can get as, as an enlisted Air Force uh, personnel. What he would do, uh, he, he led more by example. What he would do at Christmas time and at Thanksgiving, uh, no matter where we lived, he would go to, for example, in the Philippines, he would go to the hospital and he would find somebody who had been wounded in, in battle somewhere, and it didn't matter what service you were in. He would bring them home so they could have family dinner with us. And, uh, for example, John Perrick, uh, who was in the Army, had been severely wounded, lost an eye, uh, brought him home in the Philippines. And, and John's still a great fam- family friend today. Uh, it was just... I think that's the kind of thing, and and certainly from my perspective on life and the legacy and things like that, having that as a role model, you know, trying to look out for other folks uh, as as someone who who might have a little more than other people do, I think is 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 where I see that legacy coming into it, and that's the kind of message that that my brothers and I try to take out there to these to these young soldiers that we meet with. Mm. Anything else you'd like to say? Tom, I just uh, I, I appreciate this this opportunity to kind of share my dad's story. Um, it uh, the, and again the, this uh, bringing war home. Uh, I was so excited uh, when uh, when Sue and Molly brought this to us, and uh, I immediately one of the one of the things that we're doing here at statewide campuses is we've been able to to provide facilities for this throughout uh, this 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 really exciting initiative. Uh, Leanna here is our, our, uh, our leader here in Moab. All week she's been out. Uh, anybody she's running into this week, she's trying to, to encourage them to we come We appreciate here. that. Thank you. <laughs> to have them come here and share yeah. their, uh, their, their legacies of, of what it was like during wartime. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we've had Rich Edgeberger in uh, talking about his uh, father, Air Force Chief Master Sergeant Richard L. Edgeberger, recipient of the Medal of Honor. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we recorded that conversation with Rich Edgeberger um, on Saturday uh, at the USU Moab campus, of course, in Moab. Rich Edgeberger is USU Vice Provost and USU Interim Vice President for Statewide Campuses. Thanks to him. Also thanks to Leanne Edgeberger, who is director of the USU Moab campus, for her great help with uh, the project. The Bring War Home Project, the roadshow there was this past Saturday. I want to mention that uh, the next uh, roadshow is uh, coming up on uh, Saturday, November 5th at the historic Wendover Airfield Museum, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. That's in Wendover. We hope you'll come out, bring your object for military service, and uh, also uh, share with us uh, your story. Thanks for listening. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Urban legends tell of the Witch's Cabin in downtown Salt Lake City Creek Canyon. But is it really haunted? Learn its real history after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive.
In the upper reaches of Memory Grove, along City Creek, on the edge of downtown Salt Lake City, dog walkers and hikers often stumble across the ruins of the old witch's cabin. Ghost stories about the ruins include disembodied lights and voices, sometimes there is a bride, sometimes a witch, and sometimes a witch that turns into a tree. In reality, these stone ruins are the remnants of a home in nearby grist mill that used the running waters of City Creek to process wheat. Called the Empire Mill, the original structure was built in 1862 by architect Frederick Kessler for Brigham Young. It processed grain donated by LDS church members as part of their tithing, and the resulting flour was sold to raise funds for the church. The mill was three stories tall with a stone foundation and wood frame superstructure. A massive 30-foot diameter water wheel powered the machinery using the flow of City Creek. It produced 100 sacks of flour a day with its two pairs of grinding stones. Next to the mill was a house, garden, and orchard belonging to the Sudbury family who ran the mill. On May 22, 1883, the mill burned to the ground, destroying $8,000 worth of wheat and flour. That's about $235,000 today. After the fire, the city of Salt Lake purchased part of City Creek Canyon from the Young family in 1902 including the ruins of the Empire Mill and Sudbury House. And they built a bandstand on the foundation in 1914 as part of the grand opening of the new City Creek Boulevard. Today, the area is a dog park and bike trail. The ruins are imagined as the home of spooks and witches, but once upon a time, the Sudbury House, Empire Mill, and adjacent City Creek played a critically important role in the early Mormon economy. Throughout the 1920s, the ruins became known as Sudbury's Flat, a popular spot for picnics. But by the 1970s, memory of the mill and house were mostly forgotten. For better or for worse, the urban legends of hauntings became more prevalent, and the rich history of how City Creek's water helped feed the early Mormon settlers was lost. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Rachel Quist of Rachel's SLC History. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.